Well, good morning. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor here at City Reformed. Our children are being dismissed for Children's Church. We are uh, moving through a book of the Bible, uh, the, the letter of James to his church in exile. And James has been pressing us for several weeks on concern for those in need. Uh, we'll see a continuation of that today. As you look at the reading on page 6, you'll notice the first paragraph is in italics. We covered that last week. I'm not going to read it again or discuss it again. But there are so many similar threads that run through both of them. I thought it would be easier just to keep it in the bulletin and help you to see that this is really a continuation of one argument. Uh, For several uh, weeks now, we've read James speaking of concern for those in need. The end of chapter one, he spoke about true religion that shows uh, uh, concern and cares for orphans and widows in their distress. Then last week, he talked about a, a theoretical or probably actual situation where two visitors attend church and they're treated differently, treated differently based on their financial resources. One is loved and cared for and received, and the other isn't. We'll notice that in this passage today, several of those. Words from last week show up again. We see a repetition of the word partiality. And we also see a a theme of judgment that shows up. Last week, James warned uh, those who were partial and treated people differently based on their money. He called them judges with evil hearts. And this week, we'll see the language of judgment appear three times. So it's clear that James is doing a similar thing. And just to prepare you next week, James will return yet again and say... If you fail to care for the physical need of your neighbor when they ask you, and you just dismiss them with a spiritual blessing, your faith is dead. So it's a very challenging stuff, but it's all one sort of thread of concern that James is bringing to us. I'm going to read this passage, we'll uh, uh, affirm together that this is God's word, and we'll talk about it uh, afterwards. Um, you do have on your bulletins an insert with, uh, with some more additional scriptures and with an outline for today. So James chapter 2, verses. we'll pick up in verse 8 and read through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, Derek uh, mentioned that maybe I was having a little bit of fun in the bulletin putting together two things we often don't think of going together. I suppose it's somewhat of a a nerdy Christian joke um, that you have to be familiar with James and Galatians to know that often we see contrasting emphasis in both of these. It's certainly uh, true that there's a different emphasis. Um, But the themes that Derek mentioned are not only found as we look at different books in the Bible, but they're often found in the very same book of the Bible in the very same passage. The passage we're looking at today has within it two themes that we might struggle to know how to put together. Uh, First of all, James is serious about the theme of judgment. 
He says that uh, if you're going to be people that live and deal justly with those around you, you should do and act as if you will be judged. And the passage as a whole emphasizes the, the dangers of guilt in disregarding God's law and God's commands. He, he charges these people with not loving their neighbor. When they sin, this he called the sin of partiality, they've not loved one of their neighbors because they didn't have the financial resources someone else had. James is arguing here that that is something they're guilty of. They become transgressors. So on one hand, James has a, a strong concern for justice, for judgment, and he challenges us with an idea of judgment as a motivation for action. So do and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. James does something else as well. His law of liberty sort of causes us to think differently about the law. The law and the purpose of God's commands is to give life and freedom. In 13, James shows us that judgment is without mercy to those who show no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So which is it? Justice, judgment, equity, or mercy? And I think the answer is already given. Derek actually laid it out very well earlier. These themes are held together in the person of Jesus Christ. As as Christians, they come together at the cross. They come together where the the judgment of God, the justice of God, and the mercy of God are combined together on the cross where the Son of God gave himself for our sins, paying the debt that we owe, that we could experience the mercy of God at great cost. It's not always easy to hold these themes together. Maybe it was a little bit fun earlier in the week. I don't know if I was thinking of fun when I put James and Galatians together. Maybe I was just trying to prepare you for next week. We'll think of the, uh, the his great discussion of Paul and James as we look at the passage next week. But if it was at all fun then, it became less fun as the week went on. Because my job is to s- sit in the text and let it, let it saturate my life and, and let it flow into me and try to make the concerns of this passage the concerns of what I talk to you about. It's not easy necessarily to hold these parts together. I wish James had given us more connecting thoughts or connecting ideas. We see the, the, the thrust of his message, so do and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And even there we feel torn different directions. Is James taking the law seriously? Or is he thinking mostly about the liberty and the forgiveness and the grace? The first part of the passage all shows us that James is taking the law seriously. He quotes Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe the people he's speaking to were tempted to think, you know, it's not really, is it really that big of a deal if we treat someone differently when they come into our church? Because one's rich, one's poor. And James says, yes. And actually what he does is he just takes that and he makes it heavier. Because what you're doing, he says, is breaking the great summary commandment of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then as we look later in the passage, James warns us about judgment that's not tempered by mercy. James knows that we must be people who demonstrate the same mercy that we experience The law of liberty is a good news law of liberty for us because Jesus has fulfilled it. We're not crushed by it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How do we hold these things together? We hold them together in Christ. 
And yet, if today, as we move through the passage, you feel just a little bit disconcerted, you feel a little bit pressed, you feel a little pushed, then maybe we've really listened to James. Because I think what he knows how to do is to put two ideas next to each other in a way that pushes us to see something differently. I think James also knows that when it comes to our relationship with God, we're always prone to err on the side of assuming mercy. When it comes to our relationship with other people, we're always prone to err on the side of being judgmental. And I think that's why James flips it. The two things we'll see as we look at the passage today, James calls us to be people who live and do and act differently, even when it's hard. But first of all, he wants us to be people who take seriously the reality of judgment as we think about God. I don't think we can escape that part of the passage, nor can we escape that emphasis in the Bible. But secondly, James wants us to be people who lead with mercy as we look to others. And I would argue that what James is doing is flipping our natural impulses, challenging us in the exact opposite way that we tend to think. So we'll look at those two things as we move through the passage. First of all, uh, we see that James is challenging us to think more about judgment as we see our relationship with God in the passage. In verse 8, beginning there, uh, James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you are doing well. You're doing well. James wants them to do well. What does it mean for us to do well or to do good or to, to live life in a way that God wants us to live? How does God want you to live? Well, James here is quoting from Jesus. Uh, we don't know if he's exactly quoting him, but he's using this Old Testament quote the exact same way that Jesus used it. Jesus was asked in several places, what's the law really about? That's a pretty good question. You know someone's a good teacher if they can summarize well. I've heard this attributed to the great Western Pennsylvania teacher, R.C. Sproul, apparently had said, if you're a really good teacher, you can explain something to a fifth grader. Right? Because if, if you really get it, you can summarize it well. You can draw out the big point. You know how to make the application. You can say, this is what holds it all together. And so Jesus, people saw he was a good teacher. They would ask him the question, what, what's it really all about, Jesus? The commands of God, what God wants from you. And he said two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second set of commandments is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is tied up in these two things. Jesus says, if you miss those two things, you're missing it all. Well, that's really the approach that James is taking. And reminding us yet again that his teaching is very similar to the style, the tone, and the substance of the teaching that we see from Jesus himself, particularly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Synoptic Gospels. So what James is doing as he looks here is he's, he's pressing home this concern. If you miss that, you miss everything. If you've missed the call of God and the command of God to love your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't matter what else you're doing. And I, I think he's probably anticipating a counter-argument here. Someone saying, well, you know, James, is it really that big of a deal? After all, I'm doing everything else well. Look at, look at all of the commands I'm keeping. You, you really can't be that hard on me for showing partiality to someone when they walk into the worship service. And James says, let's think about how the law works. Oh, you who want to find refuge in the law. I think that's what his arguing, people he's arguing with are trying to do here. He says, you know how the law works. If you keep the whole of the law, verse 10, 
but fail in one point, you become guilty of all of it. And here's the example, the reason. The reason is God said it all. If God tells you to do all of these things, you, you don't have the right to just pick and choose one of them. For the one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who were judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without, is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. We can imagine even today a similar sort of scenario. Imagine you'd park next to the library and you, you walked in. I, I do this all the time. I walk in and I forget to, to swipe my card and, and pay for my parking spot. So I'm, I'm middle of the way through the library and I'm looking for a book or my kids are looking for books and I suddenly realize I forgot to pay the parking meter and you run out just as the parking attendant's walking by and you have a $35 ticket because you had to come back to the library and drop off your books and, and, and avoid your 25 cent fine. Now, here's the argument I have not tried to make before, but I could. You could say, listen, parking attendant, don't you see? You shouldn't give me a parking fee because I pay all of my library fines. I haven't had an overdue book. That's not true. I have so many overdue books. But theoretically, if I didn't have an overdue book and I tried to use that basis as an argument from my parking ticket, they would say it doesn't relate. Your obedience in another area under the law is not going to excuse you when you break this other part of the law. James is imagining here just a kind of a ridiculous scenario in which he says, a person says, listen, I know I murdered someone, but I want you to take into account the fact I have not committed adultery recently. Not such a strong argument, Right? That's the point of what he's saying. He's bringing us to a place of recognizing the seriousness and gravity of what God commands us to do. So how do we make sense of this? If you're following along in your, your insert, you may have noticed I flipped point A and B. It's a small thing that most people might not notice. But first of all, I said that love is the love for our neighbor is a primary concern of the law. That's what James wants us to see as an answer, an argument in this situation. But this brings us to a challenging reality. Is James telling Christians to live and act as people who will be judged? And the answer is yes. We, we can say that with great confidence because the theme of standing in judgment before God is not just part of this verse, but it's a thread that flows with great emphasis throughout the Bible. The Bible tells us that all people will stand in judgment. Now, this is a bit of a challenging thing for us to think about because we know that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. We know that Jesus was judged in our place. We know that all who trust in him have confidence that they can stand in judgment and will not be condemned. And yet the Bible tells us it's a very real situation that all people will stand before God and the things that we have done in our life will be revealed for what they truly are. For instance, in your additional scriptures on page 8, we can read 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus himself, Matthew 16, 27, says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, 
And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The summary of this is found in our statement of faith, the Westminster Confession. It says, God has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given to the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels will be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth, each shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they've done in the body, whether good or evil. It's a challenging idea. But James holds before us a very common biblical theme that all people will have what they do in the body exposed, revealed, and judged on the last day. On your insert, I've included even more biblical references because I know this can sound like a jarring idea. We move quickly from grace and mercy and sometimes forget there's still accountability. How does this work? How do we hold those ideas together? Probably, for me, the most helpful place is an argument that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 3. This is not in your your handout, unfortunately. But Paul says this there. Each one's work will be manifest on the day of judgment because that day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. There will be some, Paul says, who building on the foundation of faith in Christ will see their works confirmed. There will be some who, though they are trusting in Christ, will have the painful reality of seeing their life work burned away because it wasn't built on Christ, wasn't grounded in truth, wasn't flowing from faith. Paul here, like James, urges us to take this seriously. I've actually found this to be very helpful. I've been challenged to think this way. Maybe the last couple of years, I've been thinking more along these lines. The Bible tells us that all of us will give account to Jesus. And I know there will be so many things in that moment where I would look on and say, my only hope is your mercy. So many things in my life. And yet there is this reality that Jesus not only gives us grace to save us, but he gives us grace to change us. And that by his grace, we can do good works, things that matter. None of them will be perfect. None of them could be accepted outside of Christ. None of them would be free from any taint of selfishness or sin. But the Bible does tell us this truth. You can do things that matter. You could build something on the foundation of faith in Christ that would pass through judgment that would have eternal value. It's something for us to think about. I find this sort of mental picture in my mind as I consider how to do something that's hard or uncomfortable. I think, do I I want to tell Jesus why I didn't do that? When I knew what he wanted, knew what he asked for, knew what was expected... As a preacher, this comes up often in ministry. There are things in the text that I'm supposed to tell you that I don't exactly want to tell you. It's helpful to rehearse that mental process. Do I want to stand before Jesus and explain to him why I didn't talk about that part of the passage? The answer is I don't. So here we are, talking about the judgment of God as a motivation to do good. You want to stand before Jesus and explain why you didn't love your neighbors the way he called? 
I mean, obviously, we'll have so many places we fell short in so many areas of weakness in, in, in which we need mercy. We'll have so many parts of our life we'll look at and say, oh man, if I didn't have the mercy of Jesus, I would have no hope. And yet we also expect, don't we, that the grace of God in us is going to begin to change us? James, I think, would tell us, if you want to have something that will pass through the judgment, start by thinking this way. Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Yes, all of our works and actions will be somewhat tainted and somewhat distorted, more or less, by selfishness. But when we start there, oh God, help me to love my neighbor as myself. Help me to actually think of the needs and concerns of people around me. If we start there, we're moving in the ballpark. There's a second thing that James pushes us on, however, and it is, in some ways, the opposite side of the coin. Because just as this first part of the passage lands on verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged, James instantly begins to temper it. You'll be judged, he says, according to the law of freedom. He reminds us that God's commands is found, fulfilled, and transformed by Jesus. These commands are for your good. In so doing, he prepares us for what lies ahead. A reminder that as we move forward to those around us, we do it as people who know how much we have been in need of mercy. You see, when we encounter the law in its fullness, it does two things. One, it does really shape and challenge us to think differently about what God wants us to do. But if you're anything like me, you've been feeling somewhat of the weight of the law, even as we talk about it here. As James takes, James takes it seriously and says, you'll be accountable. Do you feel something of that weight and that burden? Every thought, word, and deed. Accountable to the Lord Jesus. And then we hear these wonderful words, like cold water in a barren wasteland. Can you imagine trudging through a dark and barren wasteland and and seeing an oasis of cool water plunging your face into it? Mercy. That's what we see fundamentally in the Lord Jesus. Yes, our works will stand in judgment before him, but fundamentally at the center of the whole system is the mercy of Jesus Christ who was judged in our place. We have hope in him. God can receive our good works in him. He can empower us to do something that matters, that lasts, that makes it through, that has a lasting value because of mercy. Friends, if you live and if you speak, and you act as people who are judged under the law of freedom, you'll first of all take your actions more seriously, right? That's the impact it has on me. The the, the counter-argument to not loving my neighbor doesn't seem nearly as effective right now. Yeah, a little uncomfortable, a little hard, it's going to take longer. The weight of that command challenges us in our distortions and selfishness, but Friends, the second part is just as important, probably much more important, is mercy. If you live and speak as ones who know you're judged, then you have to live and speak as ones who know how much you've needed mercy. 
Since I think just as James knows, our primary default with God is to find lots of excuses with the God we don't see. Our primary default with our neighbors around us is to find lots of reasons to judge them. I think James is pushing both ways, trying to offer the correction we need most in both places. What are you most likely to do with your neighbors? And maybe even as we see it in the context, we have a suspicion why James might bring this up here. When our neighbors are in need, what's our first impulse? We don't want to help them. We say, well, they don't deserve it. It's probably their fault anyway. And if I show mercy now, maybe I'm just going to encourage them to keep doing something wrong. There's an element of truth there. If we know that God's law brings freedom and we're loving our neighbors, we want them to thrive and flourish under the same commands of God. We want other people to be conformed to the image of Christ. There's some truth there. But I think James knows this is the primary way we get ourselves off the hook. I'm not going to be merciful because they deserve what they're getting. Judgment. Our pursuit of justice our pursuit of equity can take hold and take over in ways where we become incredibly judgmental people. You notice it's the, the walking as people who know we will be judged is clearly in reference to God. The law of freedom is our, it's our relationship to God, but showing mercy is certainly in reference to other people. God does expect us to show mercy to those around us. And so we ask the question of ourselves, does mercy triumph over judgment as I relate to my neighbors? As I interact with the people around me, would it be said by those looking on about me, that's a person where mercy triumphs over judgment. I mean, another way to think about it is to say when we want to love our neighbors, what is it that will most definitively help them. Our neighbors do need a calling to thrive and flourish under the commands of God. We need justice and truth. We can't live in a world without it. But what really changes people? We really change them just by being harder. Have you found yourself saying sometimes, maybe as a parent, thinking about certain neighbors around you. What they really need is just more truth and a little more strictness and discipline. Sometimes it might be true. We thrive and flourish under God's commands, but what really changes people? What really changed you? Did God get a hold of your life simply by seeing the cause and effect of all of your actions, or did God break into your life and change you when he saw mercy through Jesus. Well, for me, it was certainly the latter. God broke me under the law. He showed me the weakness of my inability to help people. But the thing that changed me was mercy. What do you most need to show to the people around you? If you're a parent, you need to be consistent. If you're, in a, if you're a judge, you need to rule fairly. We know all of the importance of justice. God doesn't wipe away justice when he enacts mercy. But on the cross, Jesus took the full judgment of God upon himself. And he enacted a deeper truth 
and a greater principle and the glory of Christ was revealed in mercy on the cross. Years ago, a book written by a French author, Victor Hugo, captured the imagination of millions of people everywhere. Broadway musical, Les Miserables, followed the threads of actors and characters in uh, early 19th century France as they essentially wrestled with themes of justice and mercy. The story follows a man, Jean Valjean, who was convicted and spent time in prison after he stole a loaf of bread for his daughter, who was sick. The other main character, the police detective, is a man of justice without mercy. A man who sees truth and unyielding principle, but is unable to accept grace. A turning point occurs early in the story. I haven't read the full book, but I've listened to the musical many times. The song captivates, it stirs. I think the reason it had such a long run and it was later redone as a musical is that somehow it speaks deeply into the human condition about our our profound need for mercy and the power of grace extended. After finally getting out of prison, Jean Valjean is taken into the home of a, of a bishop, the French church. The man treats him well. But Valjean has been beaten down for years and he makes a decision, perhaps in the heat of the moment, he steals silver candlesticks and he runs out into the night where the police apprehend him. They find the candlesticks and they bring him back. And where he had been convicted before of a small crime, now he's really guilty. And yet in this moment, the priest does something remarkable. He refuses to judge him. The priest doesn't say that no one should be judged anywhere. He doesn't move aside the principles of justice, but he takes them upon himself and he says, you know what? They were really a gift. I'll give them to you that you won't be convicted here. In the musical, the soliloquy of Jean Valjean afterwards is always one of my favorite moments. This inner wrestling of a man as he thinks of grace and truth and justice, what is deserved and what is given freely. In the words from the musical, Jean says, yet why did I allow this man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me his brother. He claimed, my life he claims for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world, the world that always hated me. One word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? For Jean Valjean and the story of Victor Hugo, there was another way to go, a way he hadn't considered before, a way of grace, a way of life poured out in love and service for other people. And yet we, like Valjean, often stand in that place, don't we? wrestling with justice and mercy, struggling to know how we find life 
under a rigorous law and an accountability that would crush us if we were not in Jesus. Do we love mercy? Will you have this week the opportunity to display mercy to someone else? To, to live out in your life this sacrificial calling of loving mercifully and graciously to those around you Will we have chances this week to see mercy triumph over justice? Let's pray that we have eyes to see and faith to act. Would you join me?